0: Special thanks to Gregory Sadler, Katie, and Alec Wolkowski for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is now our full-time jobs. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. If you want to show everyone else your solidarity, we now have an online store full of Southpaw swag. You can find links to both our store and our Patreon at southpawpod.com. When it comes to left media, we cannot exist without your support. This is Sam.
1: This is Rallis.
0: And this is Southpaw.
2: Today on Southpaw, I have baseball historian and author of *The Hall Ball*, Ralph Carhart. Hi, Ralph.
1: Hi, Sam. How you doing?
2: So, our main topic for today is the Negro League baseball. But I think before we can delve into that, we have to put baseball into context, especially for those of us who didn't grow up as baseball fans. So, there's this term that is used whenever you get into the weeds of something, but it originated in baseball, and that term is inside baseball why i'm using this to frame baseball is because baseball is known for fans who love baseball so much they really get into the weeds so what is baseball to avid fans because it must be more than a game to them
1: uh you know it's difficult uh you know if you if you ask me to describe how i why i love my wife i can give you a list of reasons but there's there's always something. Um, more there, right? There's always that indefinable element. And and to a certain extent, I feel like baseball has that too. You know, there are a lot of parts of baseball that I can tell you why um, it brings people to love them, but then there's always going to be that intangible element. Um, one of the things that I think sort of sets baseball apart from other sports is um, it, it's omnipresent. They play 162 games over the course of a year. No other sport has that many contests, you know, basketball has half as many football has like 16, 17. I'm not a big football fan. Um, you know, there's the, the, the music of baseball that that sound, especially for me, for me, baseball is an audio experience rather than a video one. I, um, I don't watch a lot of baseball. I don't have cable television and, um, the arcane ridiculous rules that major league baseball has placed on, uh, the viewing of of baseball and and blackout rules in terms of local cable broadcasts uh, makes it so that I don't actually watch a lot of baseball. I listen to it on the radio, um, and it's this music. There's a rhythm to it, a pattern to it, to the way that the announcers talk about it, and uh, that that plays in the background of my life. I've been listening to baseball playing in the background for as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a, a comfort to it there's a there's a, a a regularity to it in a in in a world you know that that has very few regular things um to have that there all the time which is i think why uh a lot of baseball fans are having a hard time with it right now you know there's uh we're all trying to uh adapt to the the new normal of what it is to to live in these you know self uh self isolating days of of this pandemic um, and for a lot of folks, they don't even have that comfort of that normal daily ritual of of hearing it in the background. Um, beyond that, beyond the, the comfort of the of the daily uh, experience of it, um, it's just a beautiful game to watch. There's a there's a poetry to it. There's a ballet to it. The movement of it is so fluid. Um, you know, a, a lot of the other sports, you know, like football and boxing. Um you know there's there's a there's a violence to that movement right um and and in baseball and basketball to a certain extent too um it, it's more balletic there's there's a fluidity to it um if if two people clash together in baseball that's that that that's an accident that's not supposed to happen um it's a it, it is a socially distant game um where where people try to um, work together as a team um, with this fluidity that that to me is just beautiful to watch
2: now speaking about the blackout mm-hmm. I've heard that being a problem from a lot of my friends who are baseball fans, but if you're willing to just listen to it, is it easier than to listen to those games that have been blacked out? like can you still access the audio of it or hear it over the radio or something yes
1: the blackout the blackout rules only apply to video and they're entirely about um Uh, cable licensing, a lot of the baseball teams own their own stations at this point. Uh, and even if they don't own their own network, they have very lucrative licensing deals with the networks that air their games. Um, and they're not willing to jeopardize those, um, to embrace the, you know, the, the way people watch television. Now, most people are, you know, people are cutting the cord more and more every day, um, Baseball has a long history of rebelling against progress, which is funny as we're about to talk about the Negro Leagues. And uh, um, But it's, you know, when, when baseball started being aired on the radio, the owners were rebelling against it because they thought that if people could hear it on the radio, they weren't going to come to the stadium. And, and, and then the same thing happened again when it started airing on television. The owners felt that if they started airing their games on television – people wouldn't come to the stadium. And what they learn time and time again, and then you know amnesia hits and they forget, is that when they make the game more accessible to people, it, it creates new fans who want to actually go out to the stadium and watch it live. Um, making it more accessible to, to all of the medias um, only encourages people to want to uh, experience it face to face. Um, Now it's, it's, it's a slightly different situation now. I I, I don't think that they're afraid that uh, letting the game be available on the internet um, is going to keep people from coming out to the stadium. It's, it's entirely about jeopardizing the licensing deals. Um, I I believe there's a middle ground where you can make baseball accessible to people online through, you know, MLB.com and, and the teams will still get their money. And I understand why that money is important to them. Ticket sales make up for a very tiny percentage of the amount of money that baseball teams make. Um, baseball is an extraordinarily lucrative enterprise, and the reason it is is because of merchandising and television licensing. So, so I get the threat to their their existence, but, but I believe that there's a middle ground that can be found.
2: Do you think baseball still has a good number of fans who listen to the game instead of watch it?
1: Yeah, I think especially in these, um, with these blackout rules, for sure. Uh, I don't think I'm alone. I think there are a number of people who listen rather than watch.
2: Do you think part of the popularity of baseball or why people love baseball so much is because it is a turn-based game, right? Even in uh, football, it's turn-based, but you're both going at the same time. Basketball is both sides get the turn at the same time, right? You get different turns with the ball, but you're both playing at the same time. Whereas uh, with baseball, it's like our team's turn at bat. Okay, now it's your team's turn at bat. Do you think that adds an element to why some people like that?
1: Yes. I think, you know, there is the element to baseball that allows for individual excellence. Um, and, you know, that exists in football, for example. You know, the the quarterback is the, everyone knows who the quarterback is, right? Even if you don't know who the other players are, um, you know, the quarterback is the one who has that chance um, for the individual excellence week after week. Um, occasionally other players stand out, but the, but the ones that, that we're watching, uh, are the quarterbacks, um, for baseball, anyone could be the hero at any given moment. Um, you have, you know, the, one of the most famous games, um, from the seventies, uh, was a contest between the, the Red Sox and the Yankees and it, it was towards the end of the season. And, um, it was, you know, the, the Yankees had been behind all, all season. The Red Sox had, had been in the lead, had been in first place all season. And they played a game in which this light-hitting uh, shortstop by the name of Bucky Dent, who I think hit about three home runs that year, um, came up and hit this dramatic game-winning home run. You know, no, if you were to pick anyone from that Yankees lineup, which included guys like Reggie Jackson— um, to to be the one who hit the home run to make the dramatic difference, it would not have been Bucky Dent. Um, But the game offers that opportunity for individual excellence at any given moment um, in a way that I don't think other sports do.
2: It is this weird juxtaposition where it seems like the game gives everybody a turn, not just a turn at bat or a turn at playing their position, but also a turn at getting some attention, right? But then Baseball is also known for being very conservative. <laughs> it's a game that has naturally built in equality into it, but then the culture has come to clash with that in the past.
1: Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. It's, it's fascinating how much it exists in two different worlds all at the same time
2: in PE, right? I think for a lot of people who were not athletic, baseball is the game they hated the most because in other games, you could kind of hide and never get a turn. <laughs> whereas <laughs> baseball, everybody had to get a turn. It's just the way yeah. the game was designed. So I'm using a funny example to show that it is very participatory.
1: Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. So how old is baseball? Oh, what a good question. Um, the, the game that we watch today Um, the, the rules for that really started to solidify, um, let's call it the 1850s. There was a conference in 1857 where a lot of the rules we play by today sort of became the official rules of the game. Um, but the game is older than that by far. It it evolved for many, many years. Um, it's baseball was never born. There's, there's a myth that baseball was invented by a Civil War general by the name of Abner Doubleday. Um, it, it's, it's complete hokum. Abner Doubleday had nothing to do with baseball. A- and baseball was never invented. Um, baseball evolved from a number of different bat and ball games, most of them British in origin. Um, so, you know, it, it, how old is baseball sort of depends on how you define baseball. If, if you define baseball as a game, in which someone hits a ball and people advance from one base to another to try to get to home, you know, you can go back to the the 1830s. Um, There is a reference uh, found in a Pittsfield, Massachusetts newspaper in 1791 um, to uh, a a new ordinance that had been passed um, The children were no longer allowed to play baseball, two words, uh, on the streets because too many windows were being broken. Um, now, it's unlikely that game they were playing in 1791 looked anything like what baseball looks like today, but it does go to show you that the game, some version of the game has been around for a very long time.
2: And what's the origins of Negro League Baseball?
1: Origins of Negro League Baseball. Well, um, baseball baseball was already sort of gaining in popularity uh to, Prior to the Civil War, it, it was there was already a, a giant boom in the country. Um, it was put on pause. It wasn't completely eliminated. Baseball didn't disappear during the Civil War. There were still games being played, but the growth of it was was put on a pause during the Civil War. And then after the Civil War ended, um, you saw uh, a, an explosion in the country. It was being played everywhere, and it was being played. Uh, by everyone, including uh, African Americans, um, there uh, there was a brief time in the game's history where um, something, an idea like the Negro Leagues, wasn't necessary because blacks and whites were playing on professional teams side by side. Um, it, it wasn't until um, the 1880s uh, that you saw that color line being drawn that separated them and, and prevented them from playing, uh, together. Um, but African-Americans were playing baseball along with everyone else. Um, as the popularity uh, of the game grew, there was, uh, a, a team out in Long Island, New York. Uh, it was, um, a, a group of waiters who, who worked at a hotel called the Argyle Hotel, and they put together what is largely, mostly considered to be the first all-black team uh, in baseball history. Uh, they call themselves the like Cuban Giants. Uh, um, the Cuban. There's a lot of Cuban Giants uh, variations on that name, um, in part because um, the, uh, while they were all American citizens, um, it was more acceptable to be black if you weren't American. Um, so they would entertain the guests at the hotel when they weren't, you know, being the waitstaff um, by playing baseball, and they would speak fake Spanish um, while they were out there playing um, because it was more socially acceptable for whites to watch l- Black Latinos play than Black Americans, even though they weren't. None of them spoke Spanish; it was it was completely made up. But that's why they had the Cuban name. Um, but but Blacks have been playing the game as long as anyone else. Um, but that example sort of shows you how even very early on, they had to go to unique measures to be able to have their game be more socially acceptable. It's it's bizarre. It's, it's you know, just one of those bizarre, inexplicable elements of racism, um, that it's more socially acceptable to be black from somewhere else than to be black. And from the United States, it's it's one of those ways in which our country's history is profoundly broken.
2: In doing research for this episode, when I saw that team's name, I assumed that that team was from Cuba, but it originated here in the U.S. These were all American teams. Okay,
1: uh, correct. Now, there were uh, as the game evolved and there were, you know, once you do get to the Negro Leagues, the, the official leagues that that weren't um, really founded until much, much later um, there was, you know, there were teams called Cuban Giants, which were actually made up of legitimate Cubans. Um, like I said, it's a name that got reused by multiple teams throughout history. But it
2: wasn't in Cuba. Uh,
1: uh, no, it was actually a team that was the the one, the most famous of them was actually a team um, that was uh, uh, the Cuban Stars were a team that was based out of New York City. Um, the the owner of the team, um, Alex Pompez. Uh, had Cuban heritage, and and he uh, was a very important um, scout of Latin talent. Uh, he brought a bunch of, of Latin players into the Negro Leagues, and then after the dissolution of the Negro Leagues, uh, Pompez went on to work for the San Francisco Giants and ended up bringing in a lot of um, Q, uh, Latin talent into the major leagues, guys like Orlando Cepeda and, and Juan Marshall, Uh, those, those were, uh, guys that were found by Pompez. So there were teams that were called the Cuban giants that were literally made from Cubans, but, but not that first one, not that first one.
2: How did it evolve from there to becoming Negro leagues? Also, was there just one league or were there multiple?
1: Um, it, it took a long time. Uh, the, once that color line was drawn in 1887, um, there were a number of black entrepreneurs who did their best to try to put together a Negro League, uh, an organized league structure. Um, one of the first was a guy named Bud Fowler. There were others. Uh, they, they were never able to successfully make a go of it until 1920. Uh, and then in 1920, uh, a gentleman by the name of Rube Foster, who was already at that point one of the most successful black pitchers in the history of the game. Uh, but Foster also had a really keen business mind. And he was the one in 1920 who put together the first truly viable uh, Negro League, uh, the Negro National League, and that survived for a little over a decade. It, it sort of fell apart. Foster's the end of Foster's story is a sad one. Um, he uh, he was uh, died in an institution. Uh, he had uh, was experiencing uh, delirium. Uh, um, uh, it was, uh, it, his end was a sad one. And with his end, uh, the league sort of folded not long after. It, it survived him by a couple of years, but but after he was gone, it fell apart. And then other Negro leagues um, came in and, and filled in that void. There was a, a second Negro National League. There was also a Negro American League. Um, the, there There were a number of different Negro leagues over the years.
2: Did they have their own kind of World Series where the different leagues came together to play a tournament?
1: Ultimately they did, yes. They they put together uh, a World Series um that uh started in the in the mid-30s, I believe. Um and and it did. It took the best team from the Negro National League and the best team from the Negro American League and and they played uh they played a, a seven game World Series. Uh I think it was usually seven, sometimes it extended to nine. Um, and the, it, was, it was slightly different from Major League Baseball's World Series. Um, always takes place in the, in the stadium of the two uh, teams that um, won their respective pennants. The Negro League World Series actually took place in various stadiums around the country to try and appeal to a larger fan base. Also keep in mind that a lot of um, the Negro League teams... For them, travel was a way of life. You know, the where major league another huge differentiation between major league baseball is you either played in your home stadium or or in the home stadium of your opponent. And Negro league baseball was played largely wherever they could. Um, they some of them had home stadiums. Those those Cubans that we were talking about, Alex Pompez's Cubans um, had a had a stadium here in Manhattan. They played at Dyckman Oval, um, but a lot of them uh, they played itinerantly. They they moved around and played where they could find a place to play. And they played lots of games that weren't official league games. The official games that, that Negro League players played were typically on the weekends. They typically played like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday schedule. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they didn't play on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, they would get on a bus and they would drive from city to city and they would play exhibition games on the way to their next league games um, to try and, and supplement their incomes.
2: At its peak then were there basically two major NLB leagues?
1: Yes, yeah uh, the, the that period was sort of the heyday of the of the Negro leagues. Um, that's where you get you know that's where you start to see the the names that have become legendary the the satchel pages. And the Josh Gibsons, the big names that go with it—that's that—that's their their big period. And I uh, just to follow up on what you were asking about the World Series. One of the interesting things, again, that set Negro League baseball apart from Major League baseball um, was that for Major League baseball, the the the, the ultimate event, the, the you know, is that World Series. That's where we get to the end of the year, and that's the where where most of the effort is put into by the teams. Um, for the Negro leagues, the the big event every year wasn't the World Series. It was actually their all-star game, what they called the East-West game, um, which was a a single game that was played usually in Chicago, um, which was where Rube Foster was from, and it was sort of where the Negro Leagues were, where they called home base. Um, But that was the one that really brought the fans out in droves because that was the one where you got to see all of those best players on the same field at the same time. So it was uh, it was actually the all-star game that was a much bigger deal in the Negro Leagues than the World Series ever was.
2: So kind of like with the MLB, they were similar in that they relied on two different leagues. But instead of the World Series, where being the representation of the best of both sides coming together for the NLB, it was the all-star game. Correct. Correct. Yep. How popular were the Negro Leagues during his heyday?
1: um they were the most successful black owned businesses in the country at the time um you know and that's that's said with a, a bit of caution because you know like i like i just described it wasn't like it was so successful that they only had to work 2 3 days a week um you know they had they were hustling all the time uh, to try and make that next dollar um but at a at a time in american history where black owned businesses were rare to begin with to have one that, you know, sort of c- captured the headlines, m- mainly of the black owned newspapers, not, you know, you didn't see a lot of updates on, on Negro league baseball in the white owned newspapers, although they occasionally made their way in there, especially once Satchel Paige came around because he was just so wildly popular and wildly talented um, that, that you you saw a little bit of, of Satch seeking his way, uh, sneaking his way into the white papers. But for the most part, um uh uh the, the Negro League stories were were contained to the to the black papers, but they were there every day. Um, you know, there there weren't a lot of black businesses that captured that kind of attention, that captured that level of of public uh awe. Um so it really was in that in that time period the most successful black owned business that was out there.
2: Well, as far as like let's say the big games right whether it's the world series or the all-star game or maybe it's just like two rival teams what was the turnout like
1: um you could see 6 or 7000 fans at a game which at that time was uh, considerable that was you know that's a lot of people you know yeah a major league game um would ha- would sometimes only get that many people in the stands you know the stadiums were built to hold Forty thousand people and there were times when they did fill up that much but you know that wasn't an every night occurrence um you would get six or seven thousand a night to come out these And, and then when they were doing the you know the barnstorming the those those games where they were driving through towns and playing uh against the local teams um you know those the stands were filled for that because that was you know that was your chance especially you know, and there's a similar issue going on with Major League Baseball now, right? There's only 30 Major League Baseball teams, and they only exist in like 27 cities. And if you don't happen to live in one of those 27 cities, um, your access to watching professional baseball is somewhat limited. And and that was, you know, especially true back then when you couldn't just, you know, flip on the television or or the internet. Um, you the, the chance if you lived in you know, in, in uh, um, the middle of Pennsylvania, the chance to have uh, an opportunity to see Satchel Page play a game was, uh, it was a big draw. Altoona, Altoona, Pennsylvania was a place where uh, the Negro League teams made a lot of stops. Um, and, and that was because, even though that was a relatively, you know, small community, um, the people came out and watched every time.
2: So I think we can't just chalk this up as a bad moment in American history because it's deeper than that. This wasn't like a minstrel show where it was Black entertainers entertaining white audiences, right? This was more like something by the Black community for the Black community.
1: Yeah. The minstrel shows, you know, like you said, that big differentiation is that those were being put together for the entertainment of whites. Um, The Negro Leagues were... Simultaneously created for the entertainment of of the African-American community, but also um, it was a direct, you know, thumbing of the nose at at white baseball. There was a a huge point of pride um, amongst Negro League teams um, when they had an opportunity to showcase their talent against white teams. And that did happen on occasion. There were times when when black teams played white teams. Um, Bob Feller and Dizzy Dean, two Major League Baseball Hall of Famers, um, they used to put together uh, barnstorming teams in the off season. once the, 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 the regular season was over. Um, they would put together teams of, of white All-Stars and they would play against black All-Stars. Uh, and, and that opportunity to really showcase their talent for the white Major Leaguers was, was an, a, a tremendous point of pride for them. Um, so it was it was very different in that the the focus of it wasn't just to entertain whites, it it was to entertain their their own communities and to show whites just how good they could
2: be. It initially started because of racism because of the color lines, But during this time of intense racism, it became kind of a form of empowerment for the community,
1: most definitely. yeah, that's exactly what it was,
2: but with that said, you mentioned Satchel Page and, some of those players getting into the mainstream or the white consciousness. So did some white fans go to see NLB games?
1: Um, yes, I am. I'm certain that there were, in fact, whites who were in the stands at Negro League games. Um, it's certainly not to the level of blacks that you would find in, in the stands at Major League Baseball games. Keep in mind that while Major League Baseball was not willing to put a black athlete on the field, they were more than happy to take their dollars um, and <laughs> sell them a ticket. Um, so, you know, you you, you wouldn't necessarily see a, a, as large a breakdown of whites watching a Negro League game as you would see blacks watching a major league game. Um, but there were certainly white fans.
2: So you mentioned earlier that the NLB players were being paid, but it doesn't sound like it was enough for them to live off of. So did a lot of them have other jobs?
1: Um. Well, for many of them, um, Negro League Baseball never stopped. Um, they, they, they played year all year long. Um, you know, the, once the weather got too cold for them to make a, a, a viable go of it in the United States, uh, they went to Mexico, they went to Venezuela, they went to Dominican Republic, they went to Cuba, and they played there in those leagues. Um, to supplement their income. They, they played all year long. The, the season never ended when you were a black baseball player. you If someone was willing to hire you, you went wherever they were uh, to keep on playing.
2: So your other job was just baseball somewhere else. Correct. It actually sounds similar to uh, the WNBA, where I've read that because a lot of them don't get paid enough, a lot of the women players play year round. They just go to Europe or somewhere else to play.
1: Yeah, yeah. And keep in mind um the you know major league baseball uh we think of major league baseball and and the guys who play major league baseball as being um extraordinarily wealthy cuz they are now. Um but in terms of the long history of baseball that's a relatively new thing. It wasn't until the 60s and 70s, 1960s 1970s that baseball players started getting paid this much more than the average working man. Um, you know, uh, uh, um, and even that wasn't that much back in the sixties and seventies, you know, it was, it was even later than that, that you started seeing them making a hundred times the, the average working person. Um, you know, the, the stars of the thirties and forties and fifties, um, they had winter jobs, you know, uh, when, when they weren't playing, they went and worked helping to sell cars or suits or, you know, uh, um, wherever they could get winter jobs to, um, it was, uh, you know, baseball was not, um, the, the money of baseball was very different for, uh, uh, than the way we think of it now for a very, very long time. All the money was centered um, entirely in the owner's pockets, and, and it was not filtered down to the players you know, in a fair and equitable way uh, until the 1970s.
2: So when baseball really was, like, without a question, America's pastime, and it was in its heyday and making the most amount of money relatively, the players weren't benefiting from that.
1: Almost correct. It's making more money now than it's ever made. Even if the fan base is is shrinking. Um, again, going back to those TV and licensing deals, baseball right now is the most lucrative it's ever been. But in terms of you are correct, in terms of the of its heyday, in terms of it being America's pastime and it being the sport that everyone talked about, um, yeah, those players, um, you know, those players those players rode the subway home from the game because they didn't have big, fancy cars. They, you know, they were just trying to make a living, a lot of them.
2: It sounds like at the time, every professional athlete who was playing a team sport, none of them were getting super rich.
1: Sure. You know, you, you, you see exceptions, you know, Babe Ruth's contracts were um, exorbitant. Babe Ruth never, you know. Once Babe Ruth became famous, he never had to work a second job. He just, you know, made money being Babe Ruth. But, but that's because he was Babe Ruth. He's he was an isolated example. You know, the greater majority of of the more popular stars from that day, they they had to supplement their income. Yeah,
2: the way we think of athletes now, that's not how it was back then.
1: No, no, that's really you know a, a, a recent development um, that came with. Um, a very, uh, uh, an important leader for baseball specifically. Uh, and uh, the most important leader in the baseball labor movement was a, a guy by the name of Marvin Miller, um, who just this year, in fact, was elected into the baseball hall of fame. Um, he should have been elected a long, long time ago. Uh, but there's, you know, Marvin Miller is one of the more controversial names in baseball history because of how dramatically he changed it. And, um, uh, it, it, it owes, he owes, um, a little bit of a debt to a, a black baseball player by the name of Kurt flood. Uh, you know, since we're, we're, we're looking at, at the Negro leagues, um, you know, as we have this tiny little, uh, labor, uh, conversation shift here, um, Kurt flood was a, a player for the St. Louis Cardinals, very successful all-star player um, who was traded at one point to the Philadelphia Phillies? Baseball players used to be um, confined by something that was known as the reserve clause. And the way the reserve clause worked was that a baseball team, if you signed a contract with a baseball team, you were essentially under contract to them until they decided they wanted to let you go. So, you know, we, we have now something that's called free agency. That's when players are no longer under a a specific contract and they're able to shop their talents around to other teams and try and make more money from that. Um, That didn't exist in Kurt Flood's uh, age and time. He uh, had no choice in where he went. Uh, So he was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies and Philadelphia was quite famous at that time when that trade was happening. For just how racist the city was, um, and so Kurt Flood had no interest in playing for the Phillies, and um, he ultimately took his case to court, and it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, he lost the case ultimately. Baseball was able to maintain the reserve clause and remain and maintain its control on players, but it, it the case was important in that it brought. Um, to the public consciousness, this awareness of just how little freedom baseball players had when it came to where they sold their skills. And, and that was, you know, simultaneously the entrance of Marvin Miller, who was not a a sports guy, he was not a baseball guy. He was a bit of a tennis fan, but beyond that, um, but he was a labor organizer. Um, And he put together a movement within baseball using some of the the biggest, most popular names in the sport at the time um, that ultimately led to um, the, the end of the reserve clause. Uh, Now the way it works is if you were signed by a major league team, they have exclusive control over you for the first five years, six years, somewhere in there. Um, And then after that point, um if they want to retain your services they need to give you a new contract that you agree to sign and if you don't want to sign that contract you are now a free agent and able to shop your talents around uh to the rest of the teams and and you know that that's that's a that has led to um the escalation of the contracts that you see today which you know for for fans it's you know baseball like much of the country is um it's a battle between those who, who have a lot and those who don't now, now baseball is, is it's a battle of the billionaires versus the millionaires, right? Cause the, the guys who own the teams, the, the people who own the teams who are, you know, I say guys because they're almost primarily men, um, but not exclusively, um, they're billionaires that, you know, with the B they've got, they've got that kind of money. Um, and the ball players are millionaires. And for most of us, you know, we can't even imagine being a millionaire. So so when it comes time for these uh, intense labor negotiations and contract battles, the billionaires who also happen to, you know, own the, the networks that we're watching the story be disseminated on um, do their best to frame the ball players as these you know, greedy guys who, who aren't happy making millions of dollars playing a kids' game that all of us would be willing to play for pennies if only they would. Um, you know, when the real story is actually that the billionaires um, can easily afford to pay them. Uh, the, the talent that gets put on the field is bringing in so much money for these people um, that it, it's not a big deal for them to pay uh, millions and millions of dollars to the top tier talent. Um, it's Marvin Miller who made that possible for the players to make those millions and millions. So for, you know, the, an average fan who allows themselves to be, uh, taken in by the spin of the greedy baseball player who isn't happy (laughs) making the millions, um, you know, for them, Marvin Miller's a bit of a villain, because they believe that that player wanting to make $10 million is the reason why it costs them $13 to buy a beer at the stadium. And that's not the case. You're paying $13 for a beer at the stadium because the billionaire owner has you trapped in his stadium and he knows you want a beer and he can charge you that. Um, he, the, How much players get paid is not it has nothing to do with how much you've spent on your ticket. It has nothing to do with how much you spend on your concessions. Um, you know, Mike Trout making $150 million is not why your ticket costs 80. Um, the, there's not a direct correlation there in any way, shape or form, but the owners have shaped it that way.
2: So it sounds like baseball is a microcosm of American politics then.
1: Always has been from the beginning. From the beginning, and and you and I, uh, Sam, you know, we'll 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 let the the uh, disclaimer to the to the folks out there listening to this. You and I met because I I have a website that's a little dormant right now because I'm in the middle of about 15 other projects, but I have a website that's called uh, Bent Knees and Raised Fists, um, and it's because I believe that politics and sports are intrinsically connected. Um, to try and separate politics from sports is is a, a foolish enterprise. Um, what happens, especially professional sports? You know, I'm not saying that what happens on on a kid's little league field has anything to do with politics. Although, quite frankly, <laughs> everything is politics. Yeah. So. Um, but when you're talking about multi-million dollar professional sports, uh, multi-billion dollar professional sports, of course politics is involved. Of course it is.
2: Were there also some other minority leagues during this period? There's the Negro League, but were there like Latino leagues or or Asian Americans' what leagues?
1: So Asian Americans didn't, there there were a couple who made their way into major league baseball, um, uh, uh, early on, but it was, you know, it was that World War II era where it really became, um, where it really took off uh, just prior to World War II is where baseball really took off in Japan. Japan is the, is the, is the uh, country that, um, perhaps at this point, quite frankly, in, in, in history, um, is, is where baseball is the uh, the most popular sport, um, more so than the United States. You know, the U.S. is, uh, baseball is battling both basketball and football for popularity right now. Um, but by the time um, it, it really took off in, in the Asian American countries, baseball was integrated enough that that was never really necessary. Um, Latinos uh, have always fallen into this you know bizarre little nether region that 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 we were talking about back at the beginning if you were a light-skinned latino you played in the you could and with enough talent you could play in the major leagues if you were a dark-skinned latino you played in the negro leagues <laughs> that's just you know and it's 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 bizarre but but that's that's how it broke down and some of the biggest names from negro league history um, are are Latinos, uh, especially Cuba. Cuba has, um, uh, you know, like Japan. Um, Cuba is still to this day, you know, most of Latin America. Soccer is the sport. Football is the sport. Um, but in Cuba, it's still baseball is still the the sport that they they love. Um, so some of the biggest names in Negro League history, guys like Martín Diego and Cristobal Torriente and Jose Mendez, um, uh, th- those were all Cubans who were just too dark-skinned to, to make it into um, the uh, major leagues. Um, but they uh, they were powerful in driving forces in, in the Negro Leagues, for sure.
2: So it literally was color lines. Like, if you're maybe black but Latino, and you could pass for white or you're white enough, maybe we'll let you play. But your cousin, he's too dark. He can't play. He has to play over there. Yeah.
1: That's exactly what it was. (laughs) I know. It's insane. It's insane.
2: It's like (laughs) such a confusing and stupid kind of rule to try to maintain.
1: Right. And what's the yardstick? Like what's the, how do you measure that? How black is too black? Like what shade crosses the line, you know, and that's entirely dependent on who you are as a person. Um, it's, uh, it's so arbitrary that you can understand the level of frustration and rage, um, that went that that fueled a lot of the negro league players um you know for there, there's um we have this you know and maybe it's it ties into the whole minstrel story right um but we we often see a portrayal of the negro leagues in in modern um uh, representations of it as being sort of this fun-loving enterprise. You know, they played a different kind of—they played a different kind of baseball than than Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball was very much, especially you know, by the time 1920, uh, when when Foster founded the, the the National the Negro National League, was also the year where Babe Ruth really um, took off in terms of hitting home runs. Uh, you know, home runs in the 20 years prior to Ruth, home runs were a rare thing. They didn't happen very often. Uh, Babe Ruth redefined the game. Um, he started hitting, you know, 50 home runs a year, and, and he changed the approach that major the other major leaguers took towards how they were uh, trying to play the game as well. Um, and black baseball didn't adopt that entirely. You know, there were individual hitters, like, uh you know josh Gibson is is the best example who were uh big home run hitters but but black baseball was always sort of a um uh what we call small ball it was about base hits it was about stealing bases it was about rattling your the the opposing pitcher to make him uh, balk which allows you to advance uh a a base um so you know they had this different style in the way they played it and and there's a, an element to that that is much more exciting you know it gets a little boring just watching people hit home runs and strike out which is a uh, kind of what baseball is becoming um and, and that that exciting style of play that's translated in terms of the mythos into this fun loving world of 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 what the Negro leagues were um and it it's for a lot of them it wasn't it was a hard life, and, and the fact that they would see you know, uh, the major leaguers um, getting on airplanes and getting all this adulation while they then had to get on a bus and drive seven hours and hopefully find a restaurant en route that would serve them and let them use the bathroom. And, um, you know, it, it engendered a lot of resentment and anger in them as well.
2: Did the NLB have the same rules as the MLB? You mentioned how they had a different style of play, but as far as the rule set.
1: Yeah, the rules were pretty much the same.
2: Now, before integration, did the NLB and the MLB have a relationship or did they just ignore each other? You mentioned earlier about postseason, certain players would try to put together games, but with the leagues themselves, did they have a relationship?
1: No, and that's that. That's largely due to the machinations of one man. Um, so um, baseball had its biggest scandal uh, until maybe this past year with the whole thing that blew up with the Houston Astros. Uh, but baseball's biggest scandal ever was in 1919 when the Chicago White Sox conspired to throw the World Series to the Cincinnati Reds. Um, it became known as the Black Sox scandal, and the very – fate of baseball was compromised as a result of it. Um, If people didn't believe that the thing they were watching on the field was authentic and that, and that guys were uh, throwing the game, they weren't going to pay to go watch it. They didn't want to be fooled and lied to. Um, And to combat that um, the owners installed the very first commissioner of major league baseball. Uh, The, the, it, it was the first time an individual was in charge of, of, Punishment uh was in charge of of enforcement. Um, you know, prior to that the owners just sort of did what they would. Uh there the National League had a president and the American League had a president, um, but the owners were really the ones with the power. Um in uh as a result of to try and rescue the reputation of the game after the Black Sox scandal, they installed a gentleman by the name of Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Uh, and Landis was um, a very flamboyant judge. Um, he was one of those kinds of judges who um, made, uh, made lots of headlines because of the um, way he handled his cases, the, the, the importance of the decisions that he made. Um, he was also a little bit of a huckster um, in that you know he, he often made these controversial decisions as a judge that were then later overruled by higher courts. <laughs> you know, he, he was that kind of a judge. Um, but he um, was trusted by the owners. He, had, um, he was the judge who, because he was based out of Chicago, um, when players had attempted to combat the reserve clause earlier earlier in its history, um, Landis was the one whom the court case landed on his desk. Uh, Landis was a huge baseball fan, and he knew that constitutionally, there the reserve clause was on shaky ground. It was really difficult to argue that a team could own a player's services for the entire life of their career. There was no other enterprise in in American industry that really allowed for that. Um, so Landis chose to handle the case because Landis believed that if the reserve clause went away and players could sell their services, the game would die. He believed that baseball would disappear because it would become too expensive to pay players and the game would die. So what Landis did was he left the case sitting on his desk for years um, until eventually the, the, um, the, uh, the party that had initiated the suit just ran out of money and the case died. Um, so the owners remembered that when it came time to choose a commissioner, um, the owners remembered that Landis supported their beliefs, and and they appointed him commissioner. And Landis, to his credit, did manage to clean up the game. Um, he did manage to, you know, remove the gambling element from it um he uh, not remove but minimize the gambling element from it. You've never gotten gambling entirely away from ba- baseball or any professional sport. Uh but he minimized the, the uh the power of it. Um he made sure there were swift penalties for players who attempted to gamble on games. Um he you know he helped uh, uh minimize rowdyism which was you know a thing that was preventing families from going out to the stadium, right? And he was he had, you know, drunk Uh, these drunk, uh, unsavory elements in the stadiums, and he helped um, sort of quell all of that and make baseball a more family-friendly enterprise. He did, to a certain extent, save baseball, but he also damned baseball for an additional 25 years because Landis was a virulent, flaming racist, Um, and he's the one who made it very, very clear from that period when he took power until 1945, when he died, um, that no black man was ever going to play baseball, not, not play major league baseball. And he, you know, he, he would claim yeah, when asked, he would say any, any black person who's got talent, uh, enough talent, uh, can join a major league baseball team. Um, but then behind the scenes, he always prevented it from happening. Um, it, he died in 1945, and Jackie Robinson was signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers um, to play for their minor league team uh, in 1946. That's not an accident. That's not a coincidence. It took the death of Landis for Jackie Robinson to happen. Uh, so when Landis had power, he, he put the kibosh on um, a lot of those um Barnstorming games, where where um, the white major leaguers played um, black teams, um, he he either prevented them entirely, or when they did happen, um, he made sure that there weren't too many stars on the white team, because it was beyond embarrassing if you took a team of black all stars and a team of white all stars, and the black team won, which they did a lot. Um, it was embarrassing to Landis and in his mind to, to Major League Baseball in general. Um, so he, th- those barnstorming games were never sanctioned by Major League Baseball because Kennesaw Mountain Landis would not get behind that kind of interaction for fear of humiliation.
2: So then looking at sports as a microcosm of American politics, progress isn't always just like a linear straight line up where it just gets better and better. You mentioned earlier how black and white players a long time ago before the Civil War had already been playing together professionally, right?
1: Well professionalism uh, above the board professionalism didn't really start until the 18 uh, until after the civil war there were people who were being paid to play baseball before the civil war um but that was sort of under the table kind of thing it was considered unseemly to be, uh, to be paid to play baseball but after the civil war between 1865 and 1887 that 20 year time span that um blacks and whites um, did play professionally on on the same teams. And there were a, a small handful, uh, I, I believe about three African-Americans who played in the majors before that color line was drawn in 1886. Jackie Robinson was not actually the first black man to ever play major league baseball. Um, there were, there were a, a small handful who, who beat him, but they all happened before 1887.
2: So, We have this period where there was some amount of integration before the Civil War. Afterwards, you had the professional leagues and you had black and white players playing to some extent. And then we went backwards, right? And uh, the color lines got instituted. And then there were some barnstorming games. And with this commissioner, we went backwards again, and those are really being dismantled. And then we get into integration. So it's like, a lot of times in the past, they had it right earlier, and then it got the kibosh. Even with talking about like unions, they probably had attempts earlier, and then it got the kibosh.
1: They did. They did. There were a number of attempts um, to unionize in baseball earlier. One one time even led to an entire league being formed in the 1890s. Uh, a, a league called the Players League, um, which was a league that was founded by. It was formed largely by a, a player by the name of John Montgomery Ward. Uh, who was a, a standout in baseball, not just because of his tremendous talent uh he He was a pitcher for a long time, and then when his arms started to to get uh, uh, to f- fall apart, uh, he switched to the infield and he and he kept playing. but he was also a, a Columbia law school grad. Um, so he spent a lot of his career uh, agitating for players rights. Now, uh, um, weirdly when, when, uh, Ward aged, um, he started representing the owners in court, um, against fighting against the reserve clause. He was a very complicated man. <laughs> um, but in 1890, he, he formed the players league, which was ostensibly, uh, a, a league in which the players had control over their contracts. The players had control, um, over who you know was the, where they played and 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 a larger voice in in uh, how much money they made. Now it it was a, an enterprise that only lasted a, a year um, because it was crushed by um, the National League, which was really the the only league in baseball at that point. The the American League didn't come around for another thirteen years or so, um, but there had been other attempts to organize and um, baseball had successfully
2: killed all. Of them. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about integration because you just mentioned Jackie Robinson. Now, just as the NLB wasn't all negative, integration into Major League Baseball wasn't all positive either, right? So can you tell us about integration? You mentioned a little bit about when the timeline started, but how did it start and what was it like and what were some of the good aspects and some of the bad aspects or some of the uh, stumbling blocks and obstacles?
1: Um, well, it, it you know, integration really began with Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson. Branch Rickey was the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, he was a devoutly religious man, and, and he would tell the story uh, for many, many years that when he... Uh, was the manager of the team for Oberlin College, where where he went to school. Um, he had had a black player on his team at the college. And there was a time in which uh, his team was supposed to play against this other team, and they were staying in a hotel, and the hotel owner wouldn't give a room to the black player on the team. Uh, and so the, the the player ended up, having to sleep in Ricky's room. And, and he had the, the player had a, had an emotional breakdown that night about how, you know, if his skin were just a little bit whiter, he could, you know, be considered a whole man in this country. And, and that affected Ricky greatly uh, so that, you know, decades later when he became a very powerful executive in major league baseball, um, he, uh, wanted to write that wrong. Now, keep in mind, Ricky, again, another complicated man. Um, Ricky was also a very, uh, astute businessman. Um, Ricky, um, knew that if he integrated his team, um, the number of black fans who would come to the stadium would bring him a whole lot of money. And he was right. He did. Um, uh, um, so he, want, he He was hamstrung by Landis. Landis was never going to let it happen. Um, so as soon as Kennesaw Mountain Landis died and the new commissioner came in, a guy by the name of Happy Chandler, uh, who had been the governor of Kentucky, um, he uh, spoke with Landis and explained that he was going to um, integrate baseball. And, and Landis, to his credit, or not Landis, uh, uh, Chandler, to his credit said, you know, I can't, I, I, I can't meet my maker. Um, you know, keep in mind, this is all immediately following world war two, right. Um, uh, uh, Chandler said, I can't in, in good conscience, you know, when the day is going to come at some point that I'm gonna have to meet my maker. And when I do, I can't tell him that I, I prevented a black man from playing baseball, um, because of the color of his skin when just, you know, a year earlier, they were dying on the fields of Europe for, you know, America. Um, so, uh, Chandler allowed it to go forward. Ricky signed, uh, Robinson to a minor league contract in 1946. It was all very circumspect the way he did it too.
2: But was there a rule change at this point or there was never an explicit rule?
1: there wasn't a rule change because it was never a written rule. You know, it was called the gentleman's agreement. One of the greatest ironic names in the history of baseball. Um, but, but it was never written down on paper. There was never a thing in the major league baseball rule book that said blacks can't play. So there was nothing to erase when the moment happened. Chandler just said, we're done with this. It's not, we're not doing this anymore. And that was it. It was done. Now it was not, it was rebelled against, um, you know, when they had an owner's meeting, um, to to when when Ricky had made it clear what his intentions were, and at the time there were sixteen teams in baseball, and fifteen of the owners voted and saying, "Nope, we're not doing this," and it, it Chandler just ignored them. You know, there was they they didn't have the power to stop Ricky from doing it anymore without uh, Landis there to enforce it. Um, so R- Ricky, you know, and he had to he had to go about this in a very Ricky went about it in a very um, secretive way. Um, he didn't just announce, I'm going to hire a black ball player. He he had to send scouts around to find the right black ball player. And the, the political cover that he gave for that was that he was going to form a, a Negro League team. He was going to start the, the Brown Dodgers in Brooklyn.
2: It almost had to be clandestine.
1: Yeah, it was entirely <laughs> clandestine. Um, so that was how he got the scouts out there to find the right players. And there were... There were a number of players who were much more talented than Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was an extraordinarily talented athlete, don't get me wrong. Uh, he was the first, and I believe still only four-letter man in, in UCLA history. Um, but of all of his sports, baseball was probably his weakest. You know, he was much better at basketball and track and football. Um so um, but what Jackie had that the other players didn't was, uh, in Ricky's mind anyway, um, an impeccable moral character. They were, they were both, um, the same religion. Um, Jackie had served in the military and Jackie had a temperament that made it possible. Ricky laid a very difficult mandate on, on Jackie when he signed him. And that that was, um, for the first few years that Jackie played, he was not going to be allowed to fight back. They were both very aware at the beginning, the level of racism, the level of hatred that Jackie was going to face when he stepped out on the diamond, not just from the fans, but from the other players. Um, And Ricky made it very clear to Jackie that as he was trying to establish himself and in doing so i mean think about the amount of pressure on robinson's shoulders he was representing the entire black
2: race how many years after satchel page was this after satchel page's like heyday yeah
1: yeah um satchel was nearing the end of his career satchel would have actually been if it had all happened 10 years earlier the first black ball player would have been satchel page um because he he was already famous even within white circles um, by that point, but Satchel really was getting on in years at that point. Now Satchel actually end up, did end up becoming a major league baseball player. Um, there was a, a, an owner by the name of, uh, uh, uh Mike Vec, who is one of the more colorful characters in baseball. I could do an entire interview with you just about or uh, uh, Bill Vec, Mike's his son, sorry, Bill Vec. um, Bill Vec is, uh, was one of the most colorful, um, owners in the history of major league baseball. He was actually, you know, and it's difficult, um, for a lefty like me to say this, um, but he was one of those owners who was actually one of the good guys. Um, And he brought Satch over to major, the major leagues in in 1948 and they joined the Cleveland Indians. Um, But it was, you know, he he pitched a handful of games at that point. Um, Satch was not the player that he was anymore. He had, he'd gotten, he was in his forties. I believe at that point he'd, he'd gotten a little too old to play.
0: A note to our loyal listeners If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com southpawpod.
2: In preparing for this interview, I wrongly assumed Jackie Robinson was the first black athlete or even just first minority athlete to play anything at the major league level. And with a quick bit of research, you find out through the internet that wasn't true, right? So in that context of there being others prior to Jackie Robinson, can you explain why Jackie Robinson is such an important milestone?
1: Um, Well, it was baseball. Um, You know, the baseball was in 1947, baseball was America's sport and, um, you know, the, uh, the NFL uh, had a, a complicated history with integration. There were Blacks who played um, professional football early on. Again, that whole, you know, push and pull, probably two steps forward, one step back, um, you know, and then the NFL laid down their own color line somewhere around the ni- in the 1930s, I believe. Um, but, uh, um, but baseball was America's sport. And, and to see America's, to see a Black man playing America's sport, that was a game changer that was uh, you know that that changed everything many years later um uh, um larry king the the radio broadcaster was interviewing martin luther king and and he referred to to mlk as the founder of the civil rights movement and and martin luther king interrupted larry king and said no i'm sorry Jackie Robinson is the founder of the civil rights movement. It was, it was a, a matter of uh, not just that baseball was the biggest sport and there was a black man playing uh, the biggest sport, but this really was the dawn of the civil rights movement. Um, you know, Jackie, the, the the world war II had happened and black soldiers were dying on the fields and then coming home and then again, being relegated to their second class status. and And there was, you know, Uh, an unwillingness to go back to that uh, on on the part of the African-American community. Um, So it it really was an issue of of time and place. Jackie was in the right place at the right time to make a maximum impact.
2: You forget sometimes how old Larry King is because he's still on TV. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Do you think part of this was also how we consume media, meaning Jackie Robinson also came after TV and radio? Sure, and in the biggest sport at the time.
1: Sure, I mean baseball had been on radio for a while by the time Jackie showed up, but um, he uh, television. Th- this is the age when television started to really, you know, baseball and television really started to become a thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, you have to think of it this way: there are, a, there has to have been a certain percentage of Americans. Who had never seen a black man until they saw Jackie Robinson on television, you know, um, there, there wasn't, uh, a, a large number of black television entertainers. Um, you know, we certainly had musicians and the like, but you know, if, if music wasn't your thing, um, you know, and you lived in the middle of a, of a, an entirely white part of the world, when would you have had a chance? And, you know, Jackie Robinson playing in the World Series, that very first year 1947, the year he, he came up, um, he, you know, he played for the, the minor league Montreal Royals um, in 1946. And again, that was all part of Ricky's master plan. Um, the reason why he had Jackie spend that year in Montreal is because Montreal was in Canada. Um, you know, Canada didn't have the same kind of race issues that the United States did. And Jackie was warmly embraced um by the people of Montreal, he and his wife uh thought fondly he spoke fondly of Montreal for many many years um uh, after they played there um, it was a, a a good way for him to sort of uh, uh, make the transition to to sort of for for the People knew it was coming. They knew after nineteen forty six that Jackie was probably, especially the way he performed in nineteen forty six, he was you know one of the leading players. Um, so they knew he was coming, uh, and, and it helped sort of ease him in. So he got to the Dodgers in nineteen forty seven, and in that very first year, the Dodgers went to the World Series. Um, you know, in part because of the way Jackie inspired that team. Now there was there was resistance on the Dodgers. There were players at the very beginning of the uh, of the experiment. Um, who put together uh, members of the Dodgers? Who put together a petition saying, "I'm not going to play alongside a, a black man." And Branch Rickey said, "Okay, I'll just get rid of you." And some of wow. the and some of them said, "Okay, okay, never mind, I'll play alongside <laughs> him." And 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 uh, others said, "Okay, great, get rid of me," and they they were gone. Um, but but Jackie made an immediate impact, and in that very first year, there he was in the World Series.
2: So, can you tell us a bit more about Jackie Robinson as far as who he was? Put Jackie Robinson into context.
1: Uh, Jackie was born in Georgia. Um, his uh, he had a number of brothers and sisters. His father uh, abandoned the family when they were relatively young. So his mother packed up the kids and moved across the country to California. She had relatives out there who, um, you know, could help them get on their feet. Um, California was a, an interesting uh, transition for the Robinson family. In Georgia, they lived in a primarily black community. Uh, So when they got to California, you know, which we, you know, especially in modern context, think of as one of the most liberal bastions of the United States, um, you know, they moved to the Pasadena area, which was largely white. And that was really the first time the family faced racism, um, uh, you know, once they got to California. Um, at least you know, visible racism. Uh, obviously, there's the systemic racism of Georgia and and how it you know forms the black communities, but but the racism that that you know was confronted with being called names for a little kid, uh, California was where that happened for them. Um, Jackie uh, Jackie's family were uh, were a number of overachievers. His brother Mac um, was uh, older than him, and Mac actually appeared in the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. Uh, Mac was a track star who won a silver medal while Adolf Hitler was watching. Um, you know those 1936 games were the were the games where Jesse Owens um, sort of put to bed uh, Hitler's belief in in the idea of Aryan superiority. Um, you know Jackie's brother was there. Jackie's brother was on the track team with Jesse Owens. Um, so uh Jackie knew excellence and and when he got to UCLA he went to UCLA and when he got there he was one of the leading athletes. Um he didn't graduate, he left early. Uh money was an issue. Um he wanted to um to um but he wanted to get married. He wanted to have a life and 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 uh um he knew that the way to do that would be to get a job.
2: What was his main sport?
1: He he played football track basketball and baseball and I, and I, you know, depending on what sport he was the best at, depends on who you talk to probably track, maybe basketball. Um, but you know, he also set football records too. He was, um, (laughs) you know, he was, there's a, if you ever get a chance to see it, there's this great, uh, he appeared on a game show in, uh, the 1950s, uh, called what's my line. Yeah. I think it was, what's my line. Um, and, uh, the, broadcaster introduces him and he rattles off all of his, um, superlatives, all of the records that he holds as an athlete. And, and the way he sold it was making you think that there was 15 different athletes waiting backstage to come out. And then the curtain opens and it's just Jackie Robinson, this one man accomplished all these things. Um, so, you know, he excelled, uh, at at all of that. Um, but just as he was leaving UCLA and, uh, was preparing to go out in, uh, into the work world, um, Uncle Sam called, and, and he was drafted. Um, so he spent some time in the military. Uh, while in the military, um, he actually received a court-martial because um, he was on a military bus, which had been ostensibly desegregated at that point. Um, but he was on a military bus talking to the wife of a fellow officer who happened to be white. And the bus driver insisted that Jackie stop talking to her and go sit on the back of the bus. And Jackie refused. Uh, And as a result, he was court-martialed. Now, the resulting case, Jackie ended up winning the resulting case, and the U.S. military, recognizing that they had um, a bit of a rabble rouser on their hand, um, just gave him an honorable discharge and got him out of the military Um, because it was easier than, than, than having, you know, uh an uppity black man uh in the ranks um and from there uh Jackie started playing in the negro leagues he had a season in 1945 um playing for the Kansas City Monarchs who were one of the preeminent negro league teams uh he was there for one year and then branch ricky came calling
2: what was his first few years like cuz he went from somebody who uh refused to sit at the back of the bus but then he got into this agreement where he wasn't going to fight back and he knew that he was going to receive a lot of racism.
1: And he did. And it was, it was brutal on his psyche. Jackie Robinson um, went gray quickly. Um, it was, uh, he had ulcers. Um, it, was, it was very difficult for a man as proud as Jackie Robinson to face the level of hatred that he was facing and turn the other cheek. Um, but he did. He, he, you know, he, first of all, um, he was very fortunate in, in that he found Rachel, uh, his wife. Um, she is probably, his career and his legacy owe as much of a debt to Rachel as to anything that, that Jackie ever did. Um, she was the strength at home uh, that helped him when he came home after the game. Um, she raised that family. Uh, While he was off playing baseball, um, she was his rock uh, and helped make it possible for him um, to be what he needed to be for Ricky's experiment. The great experiment was what it was called uh, for Ricky's experiment to be a success. Um, But it took a tremendous emotional toll on Jackie. And, and, you know, I think it's difficult to argue while Jackie had diabetes and he died in 1972, relatively young man. Um, uh, uh, you know, he was only, uh, how old was he at the time? 60, somewhere in there. He was young. Um, and, and ostensibly it was complications from diabetes that caused it. But, um, you know, his, his soul was battered for many, many years, um, trying to, uh, face the amount of hatred that, that he dealt with on, on a daily basis, um, when he went to work. And and he did it. He 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 stayed true to what Ricky needed from him. He he kept the anger uh, inside for many many years uh, until he had reached a point where the success was the experiment was a success. Other baseball teams were now hiring black players. There was no going back. There was no way they were going to unintegrate baseball.
2: How long did that take for other teams to start integrating also?
1: Well, for a number of teams, it was almost immediately. Um, within uh, Larry Doby started playing for the Indians with, with um, Bill Veck, uh right there in 1947. Um, for a, lot, for a, a good number of the teams, it was almost immediately. For other teams, it took a lot longer. The Boston Red Sox were the last team to integrate, and it took them until was the late 50s. You know, it was, it was well more than a decade after baseball had integrated before a, a black man played for the Boston Red Sox. Um, but for a lot of the teams, it, it was relatively quickly because they, they, you know, because not only was Jackie Robinson bringing in more fans to the, to the stadium and, and, you know, uh, increasing uh, um, the turnstiles, but there was this entire pool of talent um, that could make their teams better. You know, and we had, you know, just to go back a little bit to one of the things that you were saying, you know, that there was good and bad, right? I mean, the good part of integration is that you finally had African Americans um, in the mainstream uh, of America's sport. The bad part of it was that by the time the white owners were done pulling all of the most talented players from the Negro Leagues and putting them onto their major league teams, it decimated the Negro Leagues. And within just a few years, um, <laughs> the Negro Leagues stopped being the powerhouse they were. They survived ostensibly until roughly 1960, um, but it was not anywhere near the caliber of play. Um, and, you know, one of Ricky's biggest sins, and this was, you know, not true of all the owners. Again, Bill Vick, uh, was a, was an exception to this. But one of Ricky's biggest sins was that he never compensated the teams that he took the players from. Um, the Kansas City Monarchs didn't get a dime from Branch um, or hiring Jackie Robinson. Now, you know, Jackie later wrote a letter and 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 Roy Campanella, who was another black player um, from the Negro Leagues that, that Ricky brought in, they wrote letters um, that you can actually see at the Library of Congress um, stating that, they were never under contract with the Monarchs. And to a certain extent, that's true because black baseball was such a, um, uh, it was what it was. You know, it was the most successful black business, but that doesn't mean they were rolling in cash. Um, so the owners really only provided annual contracts to the players. They weren't signed for these five, six, seven year deals like we see now. Um, so Jackie and, and Roy wrote these letters absolving Ricky of any responsibility when it came to compensating the monarchs or, or um, you know, for, for taking them and, 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 um, and bringing them into the majors, uh, and leaving the, the Negro league teams, uh, high and dry. Um, but again, to that only would have been, even if they had come up with a fair co- a compensatory way of taking the players, um, it only would have stalled the end of the Negro Leagues. You know, we wouldn't still, if Branch Rickey had fairly played the monar- paid the Monarchs for taking Jackie Robinson, it's not like the Negro Leagues would still exist today. Um, integration pretty much served as the death knell of that enterprise, um, which is, you know, wonderful and sad all at the same time.
2: I spoke to a researcher named James Robinson recently about the history of union sports and a big nail in the coffin for that was suburbanization and same thing happened with boxing and in reading about urbanization there's a familiar story about communities and cultures being lost to gentrification and with the nlb it seems a similar parallel where integration was supposed to be a good thing but it also seemed to kill a culture and institution
1: yeah and and that is the truth it's it was it was a necessary evil like i i don't want I, I don't believe that we should live in a world where where Negro League baseball should exist and uh, over here, and Major League Baseball should exist over there. Um, we we need to live in a world where all humans play our games together. Um, but it did kill um, a, a successful enterprise and, and a huge point of pride in the black community. Keep in mind, for black fans, they didn't care as much. I mean, you know, and that was part of what killed the Negro Leagues as well. Um, was that they were, they were so excited to have a Jackie and to have a Larry Doby and to have a Roy Campanella playing in the big leagues. That brought so much pride that the, you know, the pride that, that came with that successful Black enterprise was sort of um, overcome.
2: Now let's talk about the emotional toll. Did that affect Jackie Robinson's performance, or he was still able to perform even in spite of all the racism he faced?
1: Um, one of the, they say that baseball is a game that you can't play angry and Jackie Robinson sort of disproved that. Um, the reason the experiment was to such a, a success was because Jackie was such a success. Um, he won that very first year in 1947, uh, was the year that major league baseball, uh, came up with the rookie of the year award. It was the first year they ever issued the rookie of the year award and it went to Jackie, um, his career was a, a, a you know, a, a testament to excellence throughout, um, his statistics are not as flashy and as large as, um, some other players. Like, you know, he was never a home run King and he was famous for how successfully he could steal a base, but he never, you know, it wasn't often that he was a stolen base leader. There were other guys who stole more bases than him, but what he was, was, um, he had the ability when he was on the field, he, he, he psychologically got into the head of his opponent so well um, that, it, you know, a, a famous, sort of the quintessential Jackie Robinson at bat was he would come up, he would hit a single and get on first base. He would steal second, maybe steal third, maybe get to third because when he was stealing second, the catcher threw the ball into center field and he would get to third. And then he would be standing on third base, and he would he would rattle the pitcher so much. He would take these giant leads off of third base, where it looked like he was going to uh, uh, steal home. Um, and the pitcher would get so rattled that they would commit a balk, which is you know, one of those weird baseball rules that is really hard to describe to people. But you aren't, as a pitcher, allowed to—once it looks like you're going to pitch the ball to home plate, you have to pitch the ball to home plate. You can't stop your motion. You can't throw to third base. You can't fake out, right? Right. You can't fake them out. Um, and, and he was, you know, ridiculously successful at, at getting pitchers to do that and being able to just walk home and score the run.
2: Oh, so he made them hesitate.
1: Right. Exactly. He, he, he was a, a brilliant at, at the psychological element of the game. Um, and it, it brought success. Um, it, it took a few years. Uh the, the Brooklyn Dodgers had never ever won a championship. They had appeared in a few World Series, um, but they had never won a championship. And then Jackie got there and, and it 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 sort of created this age of the it, it dawned this brilliant rivalry between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Yankees, and it felt like the two of them were in the World Series every single year. And the Yankees always won every single year, because that's, you know, because they were the Yankees. Um, until nineteen fifty five and then in nineteen fifty five uh, the Dodgers finally won it. Now sadly, Jackie wasn't on the field for game seven. Jackie got hurt and couldn't even play in that last game. Um, but the the legitimization of the Dodgers, the legitimization of that organization, the the, the coming to power of them that that all t- was timed um, exactly with when Jackie showed up. Um, so he you know to get back to your original question. He played the game um, with with this psychological brilliance, um, which was made all the more remarkable by the fact that he was playing it, you know, so angry all the time because of that racism mean, he had to face. And when Ricky finally took the chains off, you know, when Ricky finally said, Okay, you you don't need to hold back anymore, let it all out, um, he did. He became, you know, argumentative with umpires and with, with other players, and when he felt there was an injustice that was happening, he did not hesitate to let it out. And, and you interesting, interestingly, you saw a shift in the public opinion of Jackie, too, of course, almost predictably. Um, you know, he was, uh, while he faced racism in 1947 um, and, and throughout his career, there, there started to be a larger public acceptance of him, especially within the media because he didn't fight back, because he kept turning that other cheek. And as soon as, um, you know, uh, he started fighting back more, um, you know, you started seeing the, that that dreaded uppity word being thrown in there. You know, why can't Jackie just be happy that he's got this great job? Um, you know, why does he have to be so angry all the time? Why does he have to fight back? Uh, and there started to be a, a shift in the public opinion of Jackie after that.
2: That's kind of sad to hear just because we still deal with that to this day with black athletes or athletes of color, where there's this expectation that they have to be always stoic and happy-go-lucky and never complain. And it's just like-
1: Grateful. Grateful is the word you always hear. You should be grateful.
2: Yes. (laughs)
1: Like,
2: ugh. It's like all this time has passed (laughs) and the fans and the media still act like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's still a thing. So part of Jackie Robinson's impact then was also about how good he was. It wouldn't have been nearly as impactful unless he was that good.
1: Correct. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about the racism?
1: Oh gosh. I mean, you know, the, there was certainly the heckling from the fans. Um, there were a couple of famous moments, you know, he received, he received hate mail, um, you know, threatening his life with some frequency. Um, there were, you know, there was a famous case where he was uh, playing a game, and um, someone threw a black cat out onto the field and said, "Hey, if you can play, maybe your cousin can play too." Um, you know, it was it was almost cartoonishly racist some of the stuff uh, that he had to face. Um, you know, it, it's it, I would I would say that it's almost unfathomable to think that human beings could behave that way, but you know, we we still see it today. Like, um, you know, you only really need to turn on, you know, 20 minutes of right wing media and you're, you're seeing equally ridiculous racist claims being made. Um, so he he faced um, all of that sort of stuff.
2: Now, what was the reaction from the NLB fans to Jackie Robinson? You said they were quick to jump on board. but was it right away or did it take some time or right
1: away? Right away, he was he was adored right away because it meant they had made it. You know, they understood the black fans understood as much as they loved the their Negro League teams and their Negro League games. Um, the greater, you know, that that underlying truth of the, that the reason that we're playing this game in this way is because we're not allowed to play the other one um, was always present. Um, Jackie brought black fans out not just in Brooklyn. But in every city they went to, everywhere they played, um, black fans showed up and they cheered for Jackie.
2: So it was a legitimacy.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Not just to being a black person that you deserve legitimate human rights to be seen as a human being, but also that the NLB players, the black players were good all this time.
1: Yeah, it was especially tragic. You know, I will say this just as the side note, the, the, um, You know, the black players, the Negro League players who were, you know, young enough that they uh, were incorporated into the major leagues, it was, you know, it was a a game changer for them. Um, But there are a number of players who had been extraordinarily successful in the Negro Leagues, um, who by the time integration happened were just too old. You know They were winding down their Negro League career, and there was no way that they were going to be able to be successful in the major leagues. Um, August Wilson's play, uh, Fences, I'm a, I'm a theater guy too. That's how I actually make my living is theater. Um, uh, August Wilson's brilliant play, Fences, tells that very story. It's the story of a black man who uh, had been an extraordinarily successful Negro League ballplayer who was just a little too old when Jackie integrated and was never able to play in the major leagues.
2: We've been talking around this subject for a bit already. You've already mentioned this, that baseball had been trying to unionize for a long time, starting in the late 1880s, 1890s. I even saw that there was a union called the Brotherhood of Professional Baseball Players.
1: Yeah, that was the Players League. The, the Brotherhood is what, uh, where the, how the Players League resulted.
2: But it wasn't really until the modern era that the players union really took hold. And you mentioned about increased salary pay. And a lot of that is because of the unions. So why did it take so long? Why did it have to take until the modern era?
1: Because of how much power the owners had. Um, you know, the, the, keep in mind the commissioner who, is, who was supposed to ostensibly be the ultimate voice in baseball. The commissioner is installed by the owners. They're the ones who pick it. So the commissioners have always historically been willing to, um, follow the lead of the owners. Um, it, it, it's the, you know, it's, you hesitate to use the term slavery because there's a giant difference between actual slavery and, um, you know, being a baseball player who uh, uh, works for somebody, right? They're they're not really the same thing, but but it, it's always been interesting to me to think about the idea um, that these guys work for people who are referred to in the parlance as owners. Um, they owned the game and they owned every part of it, and they knew that as soon as players um, got to a point where they would have some say in how their salaries worked. they were going to be surrendering a lot of power. So they fought against it for as long as they possibly could, uh, until eventually, um, Marvin Miller came along and they put together the players union and they knew, uh, the players made it abundantly clear that if they weren't going to uh, start having some say in where they played and how much they got paid, um, There wasn't going to be baseball. Players weren't going to play. Um, And uh, Miller organized them and he made that change happen. And and as a result, we saw um, the dawn of free agency in the mid-70s.
2: So it wasn't just like there was a union and then everything changed. Wasn't there like a union with the Major League Baseball Players Association, but it took more time for it to finally be recognized by the league?
1: Uh, I mean, it took there. It was a period of tremendous labor unrest. There had never been a baseball strike until after free agency, and I, I I have lost count of how many there have been since. I think something like 13, 14. Now, most of them last like a day or a week, um, but there were some, like in 1981, there was a substantial player strike that resulted in a huge chunk of the season not being played. Uh, they ended up having to do this uh, unusual format uh, where they they sort of um, counted the games that were played before the strike as one season, and then after the strike, um, the games that were played were, were a second season. Um, it, it's um, since the advent of of the players' association is when you've seen uh, so many strikes. Now baseball has uh, actually had a, a period of extended labor peace. There hasn't been a strike um since nineteen ninety four. Um and and that strike was so significant that it uh it ended the season. There was no World Series that year. Um uh and when you know, but it took a, a strike like that um for the players to really see just how dependent they were on the players. Yes, the players were dependent on them for the pay, but without the players the the owners had no teams. They had nothing to field. Um, you know, certainly not anything of talented caliber. They tried uh, um, you know, bringing in scabs and and you know, you you had some games, but they weren't, you know, the the talent of the of the players wasn't nearly what it was for the, you know, the real major leaguers. Um, so it was once they reached a point where ownership understood that they needed that labor for their product to remain viable, that you got to a point where um, there was something close to resembling a- an equivalent amount of power. It's still not equal. You know, owners are still owners. The, again, it's still billionaires versus millionaires. And that, that extra, you know, those three extra uh, uh, slots in the, in the number are, are significant. Those three extra digits matter.
2: So, it seems like it's not enough just to have a union, right? You also have to have some kind of ability to make them listen, so that's where strikes come in correct Have you found for people who know nothing about unions that sports is a good way to teach them about it
1: i I have found you know from my own experience i don't I don't spend a lot of um time necessarily uh trying to educate people about unions, but what I do find is that when people try to, you know, pull out the uh, argument that that politics don't belong in sports, the most direct way to get them to understand the the how they're intrinsically intertwined is through discussing labor, you know, uh, the other elements of politics, the the you know the racism that players still face today. That's still a thing today, um, but all that that that's not a thing that not everyone can see, but. You know, it, everyone knows just how much money Mike Trout makes. Um, so when you're trying to um, remove sports from politics, um, it, it, the the easiest way to get people to see that there there is no separating them is is through labor, is through understanding, you know, how the contracts work and how the ownership structure works, and and uh, tying them in through that.
2: Now let's talk about your book. The Hall Ball.
1: Ah, uh, yeah.
2: Which is actually a fascinating real-life story. So can you tell us what your book is about?
1: Uh, in 2010, um, I got this crazy idea. I'm a, amongst my many other uh, hobbies, I'm a genealogist. I, I, uh, I work on my family tree and, and my wife's family tree. Um, and um, th- one of the side effects of being a, a genealogist is um, that you spend a, a whole lot of time in cemeteries. Um, <laughs> and in 2010, my wife and I uh, were in a cemetery in Cooperstown, New York. Cooperstown, which is the mythological birthplace of baseball. Baseball, again, wasn't born there. It wasn't born at all. It really evolved in in New York City. Um, but it's, it's the place that's been tabbed as, as the birthplace of baseball, and it's where the Baseball Hall of Fame is located. And we were there visiting the Hall of Fame. I love the town. Uh, and, um, we were in a cemetery there just kind of looking around and while we were there, my wife found a stone, um, with the name Abner Doubleday on it. Now it wasn't our Abner, the baseball's mythological creator. Um, it was his grandfather. Um, but, but seeing that sort of sparked an idea in my head. Uh, and I decided to, um, within a a couple of weeks, I, I, I created this, this project in my mind where I wanted to go and visit all of the graves of the members of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I decided somewhere along in the process that I, I, I had this baseball. And I wanted to bring the baseball with me. When I visited the graves, I wanted to take a picture of this baseball at all of the graves.
2: What is this baseball?
1: Um, it is a baseball, actually. It's a baseball that we pulled out of. There's a little uh, stream that runs next to the, the tiny ballpark that's in Cooperstown. And um, we, my wife had pulled that baseball out of that stream uh, on that same trip, the trip where we visited the cemetery. Um, on that same trip, my wife had pulled the baseball out of the stream. And I decided I wanted to take that baseball, which we had found in Cooperstown, giving it a Hall of Fame pedigree, um, and we were going to take it, I was going to take it around uh, to all of the uh, graves of the Hall of Famers and take a picture of the ball at their graves. And, and eventually the other element of the project that I added was that I was also going to take the ball to all of the living members of the Hall of Fame and take a picture of them holding it.
2: So Hall of Fame in 2010?
1: Uh, yes, in 2010, um, and I every time there was a new class elected, I incorporated the new guys into it as well. Until 2018, I, I stopped working on the project in 2018. By that point, over those eight years, I had visited all of the locations where the the deceased players were buried. I only had a couple of living guys left to get, um, and so I decided. Um, because, you know, this is a project that in theory could go on for eternity. They elect new, <laughs> they elect new hall of fame members every year. Um, but I, I, I reached a point where I decided I didn't want to keep doing this for all of eternity. I wanted to just be done with it. Um, so, uh, it's every hall of famer as of 2018. Uh, so I don't have last year's class and I, and, I, and not this year's class, um, but I, I visited all of the graves, and I, I took pictures of almost all of the living guys. There's a small handful of living guys that I didn't get to. And, and when you read the book, you'll, you'll find out why. Um, but, um, but that was the project, yeah.
2: So this is a massive project and undertaking. What made you stick with it?
1: Um, what made me stick with it? I'm not a person who quits easily. Um, I, if I, if I decide I want to do something, I I really try and do it. Um, I, when I, when I try and I don't succeed, um, I, 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 I suffer. Um, You know, I'm not, I'm not a person who accepts failure readily. Um, And, and it's, there's a, you know, there's, I, I talk about it in the book, but those, those five photos that I, that I didn't end up getting, that sort of necessitated a shift in consciousness for me as to what success meant in the project. Um, because I, you know, I, I, I didn't want to call it a failure and it's not the project in no way, shape or form is a failure. Um, you know, it, 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 I wrote a book about it. Um, it's the first time I have a, I have a whole book being published. I've contributed to other books, but this is the first time that, that a book that I wrote is being published. The ball itself is now uh, resting in a museum. Um, so there's, you know, there's, a the project was a success in many, many ways. Um, but it did require me rethinking how I define success. So in terms of what was motivating me, it was uh, largely that, um, but it was also, you know, uh, my family and, and most specifically my wife. Um, you know, I, I have my own Rachel Robinson. Uh, my wife, Anna is um, an incredible support to me. You know, this is a, 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 a crazy project and, and quite frankly, a pretty expensive one. Um, it, it necessitated <laughs> a lot of travel and we're not wealthy people by any mean, shape or form. You know, my, my credit cards still have a decent chunk of debt sitting on them because of this project. Um, but, but she believed in me and she believed in the project and she stood by me and every time I started to you know to feel doubt, you know usually when the credit card bills were due, um she would say no you you can't stop now, you're too far, you've come too far and and you know you're you're gonna get this thing done and 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 she was right
2: after a while, maybe after a couple of years, did you start to get some encouragement from the baseball fan base and the baseball community
1: i so about three years in to it um i I made a website, I met these folks. Who I told the story to, and they were super supportive of me. Uh, um, Lisa Iannucci EJ Gar, they run a website called Sportspalooza, and they offered to host a website for me if I wanted it. Um, So uh, it was 2000, yeah, about three years into the project, we created the website. And once I had the website, it started being, um, uh, it started becoming, uh, um, the public consciousness started becoming aware of it. And I, uh, I, I started having, you know, some, I created a Facebook page and there were people who were following it on the Facebook page. And, and I ended up getting this one, um, follower by the name of Tony Melito, um, who's a person I'd never met prior to the project, but he, he heard of it and he's a huge baseball fan and he loved it. And Tony actually, unbeknownst to me, started writing the media and uh, telling them about the project and saying, hey, you, you guys should tell this story. And, and he actually ended up succeeding in, in getting me uh, a feature story in the New York Times. The New York Times came and interviewed me. Um, and I think the, the New York Times story really helped legitimize the project in a lot of people's eyes. Um, I also, you know, over the course of this, uh, started to meet more and more baseball people. You know, I tell folks that before... I began the project. I was a baseball fan who knew something about baseball history. And and now I am, you know, this has sort of been my my extended graduate um, degree uh, uh, experience. Um, I'm a, I am consider myself to be a legitimate baseball historian at this point. Um, you know, even if you're going to define it by whether or not you get paid, okay, well, I've made a little money doing this, certainly not a lot. Um, you know I my, my my full-time job is theater, um, which is also historically a job that doesn't pay a whole lot of money. So my, my two great <laughs> passions are ba- uh, theater and baseball history, thus guaranteeing I will never be a wealthy man. Um, but <laughs> but you know it was it was this um, extended education that over the course of introduced me to a number of not just baseball fans but but baseball historians, um, which is you know a different, animal. It's one thing to just go to the stadium and scream your head off um, when, you know, when you watch your team, but then to go home after the game is over and dedicate, you know, all of your free reading time and research time and study time to learning the history of the game, that's a, that's a different animal. Um, and I, I started to meet those people and, and everyone I meet, everyone I tell um, about the project thinks it's the coolest thing. And, you know, I didn't know that going off. There's, you know, the cemetery part of it is weird, right? Like that, not everybody does that, you know, for a lot of people, cemeteries are are almost a taboo subject. And there were one or two um, uh, of the, of the living ball players who, um, when they, you know, I, I explained every time I met one of the living guys and tried to take their picture, um, I told them the story. I was open with them about what they were participating in. Um, and there were a couple of them, Don Sutton, who's a, a hall of fame pitcher, uh, who spent a lot of time on the angels and the Dodgers. Um, when I, uh, he overheard me explaining the project to one of the other hall of famers. Um, and so that when it was, um, my turn to try and take the picture with him, he actually basically staged a brief competency hearing to make sure I wasn't insane. Um, <laughs> because, <laughs> um, because he found the cemetery portion of it to just be so bizarre um, so, you know, I was prepared for a little pushback on that element of it, but, but I, I, I actually have never gotten it. Um, they, they all, uh, the, the baseball world, um, not only seems to universally appreciate the project, but I get a fair number of them who say, man, I, I wish I had done that. I wish I had gone on that, you know, on those road trips. Cause it involved, you know, a, a number of road trips and, and it involved meeting over 70 living hall of famers. That's a dream for a lot of people. Um, so the, the baseball world has, has accepted um, the project um,
2: with open arms. How many places did you go and how many miles do you think you traveled?
1: I travel, I drove over 22,000 miles and I flew over 22,000 miles. The numbers were roughly equivalent, in how far I drove and how far I drew, uh, flew. Um, the total number of places I went, I mean, every city in town, it's it, it, approaching 250 cities and towns. Um, 34 U.S. states, one U.S. territory. I went to Puerto Rico for one of the pictures, and Cuba. I was in Cuba twice for the project. Um, so um, you know, I, I I definitely put on some miles. There's a there's a, a Hall of Famer who's buried in Hawaii. Uh, you know, I live in Brooklyn. Hawaii's you know pretty far from me. <laughs> um, I, I went all over.
2: What were some of the things you ran into?
1: Um I mentioned that I went to Cuba twice. One of the um one of the biggest twists was that um I, I first went to Cuba in uh 2014. Um there uh were we believed three members of the Hall of Fame who were buried in Cuba. Uh and so I flew there and I took those pictures, but while I was there, I went on a tour. I went with this this Canadian uh company called Cuba Ball, um, which hosts these tours that are specifically about Cuba and baseball. And, um, while I was on the tour, um, we were introduced to a a newspaper, a sports writer from Cuba, a guy by the name of Sigfredo Barros. And Barros told me while I was there that one of the hall of famers, a guy by the name of Cristobal Torriente, um, isn't actually buried in Cuba. He said he's not really buried in the cemetery that we say he's buried in. And I said, well, where is he buried? And he said, I don't know, but he's not here. Um, so I came home and I started doing some research from home and I got a hold of Torriente's uh, death certificate. He died in New York. And in New York, anyone can access a death certificate. as public record. And I, and I found on his death certificate that it said that he was actually buried in Queens, um, not far from where I work. I work at uh, Queens College, and he's buried about 15 minutes away from there. So I went to that cemetery, and they, they verified that he was, in fact, buried there. Um, the story that was told, uh, it, it was in a, a book on black baseball history, by John Hallway. He interviewed one of the former players that, that Torriente played with, and he said that Torriente had died in New York, but that he had been exhumed, his body had been exhumed and brought to Cuba and given a hero's burial in Cuba. Um, the cemetery in Queens had absolutely no record of him um, being exhumed. Uh, so, you know, I was working under the impression that that story that had been told in that book was was a myth that wasn't true that that torriente had never actually been brought back to cuba and in fact when i did the new york times interview that was the story that they wrote about was me going and, and you know learning about torriente and then going to torriente's grave in queens uh and um you know taking that picture for the project about six months after that story was published i got a facebook message from a documentary filmmaker down in cuba who told me that he had um, Torriente's body down there? He had he had discovered Torriente down in Cuba, <laughs> so I had to go back to Cuba um, uh, as part of their uh, investigative uh, team that they were doing. He invited me to join them. They wanted me to bring um, some of the soil um, from the grave site where Torriente had been buried because the the body that they had discovered um, had uh, some soil crusted on it and uh, without going too deeply into it, uh, Cuban burial rites are such that they aren't actually buried below ground. They do the ossuary technique of burial, uh, where you're buried in an above ground crypt. And then once your body has finished decomposing, they take what remains and they put it in a tiny little box and they reuse the space, which is, you know, a, a typical, uh, of, of smaller countries. Cause you're going to run out of room pretty fast. If you just, uh, keep making all the land a cemetery. Um, and they had found the box that Toriente's bones were in. Uh, they were covered in dirt. They wanted me to bring some dirt from the cemetery, which I brought down to Cuba, probably breaking more than one customs law in the process, um, and um, got a chance to actually hold the bones of this player that they have made a very strong circumstantial case to prove is Toriente. They had a forensic scientist... Who who did like a facial scan? Um, there were a, a few other hints that the bones were giving us that this body that they had found was a professional athlete. Um, it, it's a it's a whole uh, complicated story um, that was I, I in no way could have predicted at the beginning of the project it was going to turn into. Um, you know there were a number of twists and turns. This one was probably the biggest. Um, but there were, there were a number of times in which I thought I had a game plan for how I was going to approach doing this project. And, and I got a curveball that, that threw me off.
2: So you got involved in a missing hall of famer story because it was like, okay, I'm going to meet all the hall of famers. And then one of them was missing. Correct.
1: Correct. And there were a number of them where, um, there was one other who was missing when it began and I had nothing to do with, with finding him. Um, But there were a number of them who actually didn't have grave markers. Um, When I went to go and visit their graves, there were no stones there. Um, They all had one thing in common. You want to take a guess what it was?
2: They were all black? Yep.
1: They were all Negro leaguers. Um, At this point now, all of those graves have been marked. The very first one I went to was a a ball player named Saul White, uh, who was buried on Staten Island, where I was living at the time. Um, and uh, he had no marker. My very first grave that I visited for the project had no marker. He has one now. There's a group out there called the Negro League Baseball Grave Marker Project that is dedicated towards putting stones uh, on the unmarked graves of, the, of Negro leaguers. I, I reached out to them when I was looking into Saul White, and I, and I worked with them, and we got a stone placed at Saul's grave. And, and at this point now, all of the Hall of Famers ostensibly, uh, the ones who've been buried anyway, uh, have markers. There were a number of Hall of Famers who um weren't who when they passed weren't buried they were cremated um, uh, or you know you have the case of uh, Roberto Clemente who died in a plane crash out at sea and his body was never recovered uh, and his family never really uh, created a, a memorial grave for him um so uh, that's a whole nother chapter in the book it's a chapter I call the symbolic ones where I try to come up with a a, a symbolic photo for those who didn't have a grave for me to go and visit that was another little curveball along the way
2: kind of shows us how bad it was, even if you are a Hall of Famer, that there has to be a whole project where you're creating uh, grave markers for NLB players, you know?
1: Sure. And, and keep in mind, though, um, when those guys died, when uh, the, the Negro League players died, um, they weren't in the Hall of Fame yet. There were no Blacks in the Hall of Fame until 19, I think it was 1972. Satchel Page was the first who was elected. Um, um, but there were no, uh, none of the Negro league players were in there, uh, when they died. That was, that came posthumously for a lot of them. There were some of the Negro leaguers who survived, um, long enough to see themselves inducted into the hall of fame. Matt page did, uh, I believe cool. Papa bell did, uh, Turkey Stearns did. Um, but there were a number of them who weren't elected until long after they had died. So,
2: so it's almost like, the lack of a grave marker is symbolic of the time where they weren't appreciated to the level they should have been while they were alive for sure most
1: definitely and keep in mind the you know the other thing that's part of that not just the the public appreciation but like i had said um for a negro league ball player the season never ended they played all the time um which made it really difficult to maintain anything resembling a normal family life um so you know for a lot of them Um, even when they did have families, it was, you know, it was troubled because they weren't a a presence in the home. Um, so when they died there, you know, there, there wasn't family around to, to see that they were buried as we typically think of the burial process.
2: So when can we expect the book to be out?
1: June, mid, mid June, you should be able to get your hands on it.
2: So where can people find you and your book?
1: Um, well, you can find the whole story and and see the pictures from the project, if you'd like, uh, at my website, which is thehallball.com. You can always order it. It's at Amazon. You can order it through Amazon. If you don't wish to support Amazon and their business practices, um, you can go directly to the publisher's website uh, to purchase it, which is mcfarlandbooks.com, uh, M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-D books.com. Uh, and order it through them um, uh, and, you know, through most uh, online booksellers. And then once it comes out, uh, I'm going to try and do a little book tour, if I can manage one last Hall Ball road trip um, where I uh, go around and, and um, uh, you know, do a reading from the book and answer any questions. So, you know, if folks are interested in that, they can write me at thehallballproject at gmail.com and let me know if you've got a bookstore that you would like me to come and speak at. Uh, I'd be happy to do that.
2: All right, great. Well, thank you for your time, Ralph, and sharing so much history with us.
1: Uh, Sam, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: Now that's the show. If you enjoyed
0: this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.